I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is the Chief of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition at Mass General Hospital for Children, Dr. Alessio Fasano. Dr. Fasano is a world-renowned pediatric gastroenterologist, research scientist, and entrepreneur. If you have celiac disease, which I do, you know of Dr. Fasano because he is one of the leading thinkers and researchers in the area of autoimmune disorders, including celiac disease and other gluten-related issues. Dr. Fasano is also the director of the Mucosal Immunology and Biology Research Center at Mass General Hospital for Children. Dr. Fasano's research established that celiac disease affects approximately 1% of the U.S. population, a significantly higher number than previously believed. His work has had implications not only for celiac disease and gluten sensitivity, but also for other autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes, certain cancers, and diseases of the nervous system. In addition to all of this, Dr. Fasano has recently completed a new study on COVID-19, which has significant implications for our K-12 schools. Good morning and welcome, Dr. Fasano. Good morning, Jill. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, no, it's our pleasure. So let's get right into it. Your research and the way that I know you best is generally focused on celiac disease and gluten intolerance and other autoimmune diseases. And we should talk a little bit about that work. But first of all, why did you end up doing a COVID-19 study on kids? Well, uh, for two reasons. One, as you mentioned, I directed this center for mucosal immunology and biology research center, an MGH for children. And this uh, center really focused on everything that happened on the interface between us as human beings and the surrounding environment. And the two largest interfaces are the gut mucosa and the airway mucosa. Mm -hmm. So we have an entire group of people that are focused on, on, on the airways. The second reason is because, you know, another role that I have here an MGH for children is the associate chief for research for the entire department. And as such, I had to be involved in what has been the lockdown that everywhere in the world, including here, happened to all labs. But lockdown doesn't mean that we shut down completely the lab. Rather, we repurposed the labs and we focused with the pandemic and tried to help as much as we could based on our expertise, um, you know, to face, you know, these unprecedented challenges. And that's how I got involved in this. Oh, interesting. And so there were 192 children in your study. And were these all children who were being admitted to the hospital? Can you talk a little bit about how you found the 192 folks in your study? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, actually, the purpose of, of this initiative was to answer a question that was very puzzling to us. Uh, why kids are spared by COVID-19? That was our feeling at the beginning of the pandemics, given the fact that the people that were trying to start to floating into hospitals worldwide, including here in MGH, mm -hmm. where the vast majority of adults. And so we got the impression that kids were spared mm -hmm. by the pandemic. And therefore, it was our intention to try to understand what kind of tricks kids they use to not get sick. Mm -hmm. Now, I want also to make clear that at the beginning of the pandemics, you know, for us, the people affected were the ones who were sick enough to come to the hospital because we didn't have enough tests 
uh, to check for everybody. Okay. So what we did was in our region, we recruited mainly three categories of kids. One was indeed the, the kids that came to the hospital because they had symptoms compatible with, with uh, the, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fevers, runny nose, cough, uh, short of breath, that kind of stuff. Then we, you know, recruit the kids that lived in what we call hot spot area in the, you know, surrounding. So in other words, places uh, that detected a high rate of COVID-19 infection okay. to see if kids living in that environment will eventually be protected. And the third category of kids were the ones that lived in the household or been in contact with people that have been proved to be infected by COVID-19. Hmm. Again, try to understand, you know, what was the deal there. So how that's what you know brought us to have this uh, you know initiative to organize this very comprehensive and complicated uh, biobank and, and biorepository of kids that were object of this study. So the findings were really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the highlights of of your findings with these 192 children? Yeah, I mean, uh, with our major surprise, uh, you know, we realized that kids are not immune at all uh, by COVID nineteen. So what was interesting was, and at this point now it's been confirmed by many other studies after that we published ours, is that kids have the same chance than adults to be infected. However, contrary to adults, the vast majority of the cases, disinfection translates in little no symptoms. So that's the reason why we missed at the beginning, because not testing people that have little no symptoms, it's, it's of course missing the submerged iceberg of this, you know, pandemic. Yeah. And actually, as we learn, and again, it's not that we have a lot of information about this SARS-CoV-2. It's a relatively new virus for us. We, we learn on a go. In other words, we're building the airplane, we're flying here. Um, you know, we realize that, you know, who can spread the disease can be indeed the ones there are little no symptoms. See the last situation with the uh, venue, the White House Rose Garden, you know, right. the, who was the spreader probably was somebody with little no symptoms. Right. So it was not visible. And therefore, you know, that was the first surprise. So 25% of the kids that they, we recruited turns to be positive. Mm-hmm. The second surprise was that, you know, those that were positive have a viral load that was equal or even higher of the viral load of the adults that were, you know, admitting the intensive care unit because they could not breathe because they developed, you know, pneumonia secondary to disinfection. And, um, you know, the, the, the third thing was the distribution of this infection that, you know, brings another social and political aspect to the table here. The vast majority of the kids that are infected were from low socioeconomic, you know, families. But but was that actually a finding of the study? Because you recruited in high areas of density of COVID-19, which are our most impoverished, the most impoverished parts of the city. Of course, then, the, of course, that's the reason why probably the the data were biased were that, yeah. but anyhow, because on large scale, it, you know, if you ask yourself, who are the people that got sick? Mm. Uh, and there are two major, you know, uh, you know, categories, the people with preconditions. So in other words, the one they are susceptible. Yeah. Um, uh, so if you have a cardiovascular disease, if you have, uh, if you are obese, if you have hypertension, you have type two diabetes, uh, you know, you are at risk. And then the people that belong to low socioeconomic status. Yeah. Now, the former 
are conditions that you can control because of course if you have those conditions it's up to you to lose weight to control your blood pressure to be you know sure that your cardiovascular condition is under control and so on and so forth the socioeconomic status you don't choose mm. so do you um were you surprised at the number of uh, kids who either tested positive or had late onset covid related illnesses it's significant Number of yeah, I, I, this, was, this was very shocking to us. Yeah. First of all, because again, as I told you at the beginning, the purpose of this exercise was to find out what kind of tricks kids they use to protect themselves against infection. So this could be, you know, leading to uh, new strategies in terms of prevention of the pandemic. Mm. So that was definitely surprising. The second surprise is that, again, a subgroup of these kids um, develop a serious, serious consequence of the disease, what we call the the, um, multi-organ inflammatory syndrome in children, or MIS-C. This is a condition that, you know, happens weeks and weeks after the infection as the consequence of the host immune response to the attack of the virus rather than the virus itself. And that brought us to learn another lesson that we appreciated of, of, of how this virus interacts with us. This seems to be a three-phase kind of disease. Mm-hmm. The first phase that is common to both adults and kids is when the virus, you know, infects us. So in other words, that comes in the port of entry, they are the eyeways, and colonize the upper respiratory tract, your nose, your 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 larynx, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. That, in general, both in kids and adults, tra- translates into little nosing things. These are the spreaders. These are the ones that can eventually spread the virus without knowing doing that. Right. The second phase that seems to be almost premised of adults, rarely seen in kids, is when the virus travels from the upper to the lower airways and infect your lung. And what it does will translate in this very serious pneumonia uh, that is called technically interstitial pneumonia, in which in practical terms, the, the inflammation and infection leads to, uh, you know, leakiness of fluids in your lungs. So it's like you're drawn in the water and you can't breathe unless you've been put on a ventilator. These are the people that eventually will go to the intensive care unit. Yep. We rarely see kids that go in the second phase. And then there is a third phase that we see equally in kids and adults. And now we see an increase in the case in adults compared to what was described at the beginning that happened weeks and weeks after the infection. So the virus, it's it's gone. The immune system is being seen the virus and fight against this and mount an immune response. When this immune response goes in all the right and you have the cytokine storm, the inflammation in your vessels, and so on and so forth, this translates the insult to a variety of organs, including the brain, the kidney, the gut, the heart, that can eventually be, you know, life-threatening, you know, complication of the infection that, that again, uh, leads to this multi-organ, you know, inflammatory syndrome. You're saying that we're seeing that more now. Are we seeing that more now because so many more people have gotten COVID, moved through phase one and or phase two? And, and now we're seeing more prevalence of phase three? Partially, but mostly because the peak of the infections move from the older people, because of course, being older is also increasing your risk of infection. Right. That's, you know, your immune system is not 100% strong as it should be. Right. 
And therefore, when you got the infection at that level, you, you end up to be in a hospital. And, and that's where the vast majority of the casualty that we have recorded worldwide happened. So the elderly people and the one with precondition. Yeah. But now that much younger people, the peak is between 35 and 40 years of age, they are infected. They can go through phase two. They can, you know, eventually, you know, um, make through that and go back home after they've been in the hospital. And then weeks later, you see this storm that you don't see to the one that unfortunately succumbed to the phase two being uh, more at risk. And what percentage of kids are you seeing that in? Oh, do you mean the percent of kids that develop a missing? Yeah. Who had COVID. That's right. It's not high, but it's, it's tangible. It's 3 4% of kids with infected with COVID-19 that will eventually develop missing. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, so many questions. What, tell me, so this is, so we're talking about actually getting the disease. Um, it, it, has work been done on the, on, on children's ability to spread the disease? Um, are, are they better spreaders or not as good? spreaders as uh, adults? <laughs> this is a very good question that, you know, you know, really um, caused a lot of, uh, you know, discussion following the publication, the paper that we had a few, uh, you know, months ago in yeah. the journal pediatric. Well, a lot of people say, okay, the fact that these kids, they have virus in their airways doesn't imply that they can spread it. You know, that's true. The study was not designed to answer this question mm -hmm. because, you know, again, we didn't have the tools to do something like that is to do the traceable, you know, impact of, of contacts. So the ones that, for example, are doing now with the White House situation to see who was there, who they've been in contact with to see over the two, next two, three weeks you know, who of the contacts will eventually develop the, the disease or not. Right. At that time, there was no such thing because we didn't have enough, you know, uh, tests, uh, swabs to, to, to do something like this. So mm -hmm. we don't know for sure. However, however, I have to say, if you have a virus in your upper airways, any kind of virus, they tend to spread if you cough, breathe, sneeze in the environment. If this virus doesn't do that, that will be a one of a kind. Okay. Two, we know that this happened in adults. So if adults can do that and kids that cannot, that will be again something unusual. Right. And unfortunately, three are now with the reopening of the schools, and those schools in which kids are not being careful enough to really embrace the recommendation of a safe reopening of the schools have been the ones that have been infected and spread the virus to other people. So we know that this can happen. Yeah. Do you, so this, your study came out in August before any schools went back to school physically. Now there's a whole, we have probably every kind of school possible happening, virtual school, sometimes virtual school, fully in school school. What's your, your recommendation coming out with this paper was that we need to be very careful in planning for back to school, that we need to use every tactic we can, masks and hand washing and social distancing, et cetera, as we bring kids back to school. How closely is um, your team paying attention to what's happening with back to school across the country and, and what's your opinion of how, how it's going? Well, 
let me clarify, Jill, that we didn't make any recommendation. We are scientists. We are not policymakers. Okay. We are the ones that provide data that policymakers that need to use to implement social behavior. Um, in this case, we, the only thing that we said was don't disregard kids as possible source of virus spreading. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 you know, underline possible because again, at the time we we're not 100% sure. And, you know, we don't provide any opinion on the matter. But the only thing that we said was if you decide to reopen schools and, you know, implement in-person schools, don't be cavalier about that. Make sure that what has been working so far will be implemented in the schools, i.e. social distance, frequent and hygiene, and most importantly, the use of the mask. Again, I'm not making any political statement here. I'm talking about the obvious. Yeah, right. Um, You know, nobody will dispute that, you know, of what we have so far to throw against this virus, these three simple but, you know, effective, uh, you know, Implement and um, implementations have been extremely successful to minimize the impact of the virus in spreading around. Mm-hmm. And every single time that we abandon that, we pay consequences. Right. Do you do you have an opinion on testing, antigen testing, PCR testing with kids, and and potentially as a piece of the mix in safely staying in school in person? Well, again, uh, if we had unlimited resources and the, the unlimited swaps availability, that's by far the best way to do it. You know, again, back to our study, when we compare kids that tested positive with SARS-CoV-2 compared to the ones that test negative, clinically, they are not distinguishable. So if you have fever, for example, and I make the example of fever because, you know, the, the thermoscanners have been proposed as a way of screening kids to go to school. You know, the chance that you have the vaccine is 50-50. Mm. And now that we're approaching the flu season, if we decide to keep home uh, all the kids that will have some low-grade fever as a way to make sure that for two weeks, by the way, because that's what you need to do even if the fever is gone, as a way to prevent the spreading, we will close automatically the schools in a few weeks because the flu season is coming and many kids will develop those kind of symptoms. Mm-hmm. So based on symptoms, you can't distinguish if these kids are infected or not with the coronavirus. Uh, ideally, the testing would be the best way to go. And if there is feasibility, you know, a school district should uh, eventually consider that as a as a, a possible approach. So if you have, for example, you know, a case of a kid that with symptoms that you know are suspicious, and you keep the kids home, uh, rather than to just say you stay home for two weeks and then you can come back to school, you test these kids right away. And if he or she tests positive, then you test all the contacts of these kids, yep. classmates, teachers, everybody that been you know in touch with these kids. Do you, and and so in a perfect world, let's assume, you know, it it does seem like on the other hand, tests and low cost tests are coming, right? There's like 200 um, in line to get EUAs from the FDA, um, uh, I think over the next several months. Um, And so we probably will have a flood of tests that work to varying degrees of accuracy. 
which should drive, we should bring price points down. Is there, are there strategies that schools should be thinking about in terms of how often to use these tests in order to actually catch the disease? I mean, we have a great national example right now where we were using an antigen test to catch things and then referring to a PCR test to confirm it, but the antigen test only catches things at a very small point of time in the disease, but they're also probably going to be less costly tests. And, and yeah. so over at MGH, are, are there, is there thinking happening about how testing should be used once the price points drop? Absolutely. You know, again, the rapid testing has been very useful, but not, you know, so precise as the, you know, the traditional testing. Now, the traditional testing was useful only if you have the results within 48 hours. If you have to wait a week, right. as sometimes happened in the past, uh, you know, no matter how accurate it is, it's, it's not that useful. Yeah. Um, I believe that, you know, we learn a lot of lessons uh, from other you know, initiatives to really keep people safe. Let me give you an example. Um, you know, uh, two examples, um, the sports related. One of the NBA, they decide to put all the players in a bubble uh, and not moving around and um, test them very frequently. That has been extremely successful, you know, in terms of containing the infection there. A second example in which you test frequently but not keep people in the bubble is the NFL. Right. And here we see a slightly different story because, you know, some of the, uh, you know, players um, have been uh, tested, uh, you know, positive, including uh, the, the, the Patriots quarterback. Right. right. Um, you rely on their behavior. And the last example of fourth, it's soccer. For example, in Italy, there was a game uh, between two teams in which one of the two teams end up to have two people that were infected. And these are people that are tested every time with this, you know, reliable tests. And the rest of the team tested negative. They end up to play the game without those two positive with another team. In a matter of weeks, another 19 people, other players and, you know, uh, you know staff mm. are the first team tested positive. And now the second team that play against this first team now have four people positive. So you see that even a negative test, if not taken in the context of, okay, we're in a pandemic, there's been exposure, there is a, a time of incubation. If you test negative ne today, it doesn't mean that you are not infected already. Right. It just means that the viral load didn't reach the thresholds to be detectable. So, you know, this is to teach us another lesson. We got to be careful. Yeah, right. So how, um, and, and I just want to mention, as I, I, I forget that I shouldn't be using acronyms as I'm doing this. And so an EUA is an emergency use authorization. And so we have, we have many, many companies and academic institutions who are in line with the FDA right now trying to get emergency use authorizations for, for their tests. Before that, happens, you know, in a way that schools could start to use them on a regular basis, how should parents and school systems be thinking about bringing kids back to school, given that they can easily be asymptomatic, but could potentially also be carrying the disease? How do you build an in-person in experience where your leading assumption has to be somebody here has COVID? 
So, Jill, I believe that, you know, we need to really understand the heart and soul of the meaning public health. Mm. Public means for everybody. Health means to stay healthy. So the implementation of these three simple but effective, you know, rules of physical distancing, wearing a mask and washing hands very frequently, even without having the availability of frequent testing is the best thing that I can do to make sure that my son, my daughter can go to school safely, will be able to attend, you know, and have an in-person experience to the teaching, you know, uh, experience to keep him or herself, you know, safe and at the same time to not bring anything back home that will infect me, uh, the grandparents, the, the neighbor and other friends that we play with. These are the simple rules that we can do until we have something more effective, a vaccine, an antiviral, you know, remedy, whatever. But but again, it's a matter of public health. Mm-hmm. It's a question of respect your neighbor, your more vulnerable people that are around. You know, if you go and go to a party in a severity in a college, or you do not take this seriously and let your kids doing stuff that will eventually make no sense, what's going to happen is what is happening now in New York, in which a neighbor needs to be locked down again. Right. Because this is coming back. And uh, it's going to, you know, it's what happening in France, where they have 20,000 infections a day, or UK. We can't afford to do this again. Right. And again, I'm not making this a political statement. I'm making this as a public health statement. It makes a lot of sense that if we behave properly, we take care of ourselves, our kids, and most importantly, our society. You know, if we really care about our society, there are no shortcuts. Right. You know, we need not cheerleaders that tell us everything is fine. Don't worry about it. We need leaders that take the science, digest what that means, and they have the responsibility to make, you know, policy decisions based on facts. Right. That's pretty much what's the story. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, and I, just out of curiosity, there are some schools that are um, doing just uh, non-competitive, but sports in schools with mask wearing, things like soccer and cross country. What do you think about those? Do you think those are okay? Are those as safe as being in school with a mask on? I believe so. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the teaching experience and the sport experience is the life experience of kids. Yeah. And I, I can't conceptualize, you know, a, 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 a pediatric society without having, you know, the possibility to interact with peers in, in learning and playing. Yeah. So by all means. So if you play tennis, you can even play without the, the mask because you are definitely, you know, distanced from your opponent more than the minimum necessary. But if you play soccer, if you play, you know, uh, 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 even baseball, uh, you know, or, or football, uh, you know, lacrosse, you know, the, the physical content is there. So, um, you know, I know that, you know, because I've been, you know, an athlete in my previous life, how difficult that will be, uh, you know, but, you know, there is no other way around for the time. Yeah. I know. You know, it's better to be safe than sorry. 
So now you're, we also talked a little bit about the flu season, um, which is coming straight at us. And uh, it sounds like the other half of the world, which just went through the flu season, had uh, not a bad flu season. And, and I'm assuming that's because people, more people were wearing masks and were more protected against it. Are, are, we, are we thinking that maybe we have a less aggressive flu season this year if, if we're all wearing masks and washing our hands and staying distant from one another? So, Jill, this is such an interesting, uh, you know, spontaneous, uh, you know, scientific exercise. You just told, uh, you know, what has been, what was expected by at least epidemiologists and infectious disease experts, mm -hmm. that if you are more, you know, prone to, uh, you know, be careful in terms of, you know, general hygiene and, and prevention, um, something that we know, give for granted, that has to happen all, every year that will affect a million people, will have a more mild, you know, course. Um, so it is true that it's been milder, probably because there's been a complete lockdown for two, three months, people that were, you know, uh, locked home. And, you know, when allowed to go out, that people, they maintain, uh, at least in the vast majority of the cases, you know, the physical distance and so on and so forth. Right. Um, the problem is, you know, that still we're going to face a flu season. And, you know, if we have the flu vaccine, rather than, to, you know, give the vaccine just to the people that we typically recommend, so the most vulnerable, uh, so healthcare professionals, uh, keep their immunosuppressed, uh, and elderly, probably, particularly because we want to keep the schools open uh, and not close again for, you know, the reason that we just discussed, right. uh, that, you know, the, the flu symptoms overlap completely with COVID symptoms, probably we should be more permissive and vaccinate everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and the governor did mandate that everyone, I think, under 18 this year in the state needs to be, right. yeah, have the and, and for that reason, exactly for that reason, I believe that the reasoning was, you know, if we do that, then we are not facing the, you know, this confusion of who has what. Right, right. So now you're, you're best known, just switching gears for psychiatric yeah. disease and other autoimmune diseases. And can you talk a little bit about those in conjunction with COVID-19 and, and do folks who suffer from celiac disease or from other autoimmune diseases um, have bigger risks um, if they contract COVID-19? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This has been something that has been debated now for a long time. And there are two issues, actually. Are people with autoimmune diseases more susceptible to be infected with COVID-19? And the second quite intriguing question is, are people that are infected with COVID-19 more, more prone to develop secondary autoimmune diseases because genetically predisposed to do so? Mm. So the first question, and it's focusing on celiac disease, the one that I've been working more closely with, um, you know, celiac disease is, is, is likely, um, you know, known by, you know, the vast majority of people is an out and is one of a kind of autoimmune disease for which we have a very effective uh, treatment, not a cure, but a treatment is gluten-free diet. Right. If you're simply gluten-free, um, you know, you're pretty much indistinguishable from a normal individual, including your immune functions, that it's back to full gear. You, to be more susceptible to be infected with COVID-19 should be like everybody else. Mm -hmm. We've done a, a very quick survey on, on internet, um, and looks like that indeed people with uh, celiac disease that is well-controlled 
um, are not more susceptible than the general population to, um, you know, the COVID-19. Um, you know, again, a uh, different story is if you are affected by an autoimmune disease and for that reason, you are an immunosuppressant, for example, so your immune system is weak. And that definitely increases your risk. And we've seen that uh, to develop COVID-19. So if you are an immunosuppressant because you have multiple sclerosis or you have a Crohn's disease and so on and so forth, that can indeed increase your risk to develop um, you know, um, COVID-19 infection. Now, the other way around is something that we don't have a straight answer yet, but it's well known, for example, even for celiac disease, that the triggering factor that puts you over the edge can be an infection. And therefore, a lot of people that suffer celiac disease will tell you, oh, gee, you know what? I remember now that a few weeks before diagnosis, I got a flu, I got, you know, a gastrointestinal upset, uh, I got, um, you know, I traveled to one place and, and I got, you know, sick when I was there and so on and so forth. So suggesting that a triggering factor can be the infection, uh, any kind of infection um, that can affect, the, you know, this ecosystem that live in symbiotic relationship with us that is called the microbiome. And therefore, any infection, including COVID-19, can change that microbiome and therefore that friendly interaction that we have between uh, us particularly our immune system and, you know, this ecosystem. And now we'll become a belligerent interaction that leads to activation of the immune system that fights. And now on a specific genetic background, you can develop another immune disease. Oh, interesting. So thinking about that, you know, both for adults and for kids who, um, I guess, not just are back at school, but kids in general, are, are you, do you think about, um, or do you recommend any kind of, immunity boosting strategy? Are there particular supplements or vitamins that you're recommending to your patients right now that they take in order to boost, boost immunity? Jill, now I've come in your, you know, um, of, you know, field of action here. Yeah. Um, so you, you saw that, you know, our president is taking zinc, uh, the melatonin and, uh, you know, other supplements and multivitamins and so on and so forth. They can all help. But by far, the things that will help tremendously is try to minimize your risk to develop inflammation and therefore to have an immune system that rather to be laser focused on fighting the enemy, it's fighting against its own body all the time. Yeah. And of all things that create that state of chronic inflammation that, by the way, is what uh, older people they face people with precondition they face. So in other words, stuff that we know already that made them susceptible to the infection. Of all things that you can do, nutrition is by far the most impactful way that can minimize the problem. And honestly, I do believe that one of the reasons why low socioeconomic classes are paid the, 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 the highest price of COVID-19 infection is because of their poor nutrition. Mm. A poor nutrition means a poor, again, balance of your microbiome and a more prone, uh, you know, uh, situation to develop inflammation. And if you have a, a, a chronic state of inflammation and, and an enemy comes in, like, you know, the, the coronavirus, you know, that finds the first terrain to find a niche without having an immune system that is ready to fight against this other enemy. Why? Because it's fighting other wars. And is distracted by that fighting. So, Dr. Pisano, then, do you, is there a 
Dr. Fasano diet, low inflammation, anti-inflammation diet that we should all be on right now to prevent or to boost our immunity against COVID-19 and the flu? Uh, you know, I have been asked this many, many times, and not just because of the COVID-19. I'm not the first, no. That's right. And the simple answer is, I don't have a magic, uh, you know, uh, recipe, <laughs> no point in telling here, um, but uh, it's common sense. The common sense is that, you know, um, in terms of uh, evolution, we, for almost 99% of evolution, have been eating a certain way. And then we shift um, recently that way of, 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 you know, lifestyle in terms of nutrition. So, and it's, it's lifestyle, Jill, it's not just nutrition. So, if, if we want to minimize the risk to be in a, in a chronic inflammatory state, we should eat a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetable, nuts, tubers, olive oil, you know, very little meat, and that to be lean, fish, but, you know, the ones that have, you know, the omega-3. In other words, I'm describing probably what somebody would recognize as the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, um, Mediterranean uh, diet. That's right. right. The Mediterranean diet. Our Twizzlers aren't on that diet, I'm assuming. Say it again now? I'm joking. There's there's not a lot of sugar on that diet. <laughs> no, no, no. Of course not. No refined sugars, no uh, excessive animal fat and that kind of stuff. And and again, I believe that, you know, this is the kind of diet that will keep your, you know, immune system in shape, ready to fight. Because again, will prevent, you know, the chronic inflammation, not only because of the nutrients that you have, will feed the good microbiome, quote, unquote, but also because some of this stuff contain intrinsically some anti-inflammatory, you know, molecules that help you to fight, you know, infections, including COVID-19. So do, are there grains on that diet too? Like, can you eat rice? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But but not in a large amount yeah. because, again, if you, it, it's a matter of quantity and quality. So if you compare the amount of fruits and vegetables that you eat compared to grains, there's a ratio 10 to 1. Yeah. So, you know, grains are fine unless, of course, you have a condition like yours in which you can have grains with gluten in it. But in the moderate amount, like even animal fat is fine if it's consumed in moderate amounts. Mm. Uh, it's the unbalanced diets, you know, that we have, the, the Western lifestyle, it really departed dramatically from what we typically used to do in terms of diet. Right. But not only the diet, also lifestyle in general. You know, you don't exercise. And when I talk exercise, I'm not talking about, you know, running the marathon, but at least we have 20, 30 minutes of, of activity every day. We don't sleep well to have a, a good night of sleep. Um, we are stressed out, you know, uh, all the time. And, you know, we don't put in perspective priority of lives. Uh, you know, all this will impinge negatively on your immune system. Right. And, and I believe that the COVID-19 taught us a lesson. You know, uh, on a personal level, I was a person extremely busy, traveling all over the world, having very little time for myself. Um, and, you know, I've been forced to stay put. And guess what? The world is still running. My students have been taught. You know, I give lessons uh, online. Um, so it can be done. Yeah. I, I think it was impossible. I think that the COVID-19 just accelerated by 10 years what was going to happen anyhow. Yeah. Um, but, you know, put also ourselves in perspective, say, where are the priorities here? 
you know, what are the stars in life? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that it's, it's making us all take a deep breath and, and reflect on how we operate for sure. You, you talked a little bit about the sleep, the lack of sleep people are getting. And there's been a lot written recently about how many people during this crisis uh, are not sleeping nearly as well for all kinds of reasons. Is, is that why melatonin is, is sometimes recommended in this? I, I've seen recommendations for D and zinc and uh, vitamin C, but also melatonin often comes up in kind of that list of um, ways to protect yeah. yourself, fortify yourself against COVID-19. That's right. So zinc and vitamin C are well-known, uh, you know, uh, molecules that can are necessary for your immune system to work the way they're supposed to. Uh, so that's the rationale for those. And again, you can take that as a supplement or, again, a good balanced diet will provide plenty of zinc and vitamin C. Mm-hmm. Melatonin, I believe that is one reason is it's, it's you know, uh, um, you know, recommended because uh, you're right. Because, you know, a lot of people during the stressful time, um, particularly if they don't have a good family network that will support, you know, what has been uh, a, a radical change in lifestyle, uh, has been a suffering of insomnia or disturbance of the sleep. Uh, you know, so again, um, I can tell you, you know, I was one of the people who said, listen, if I sleep half an hour less every day, I will live three, four years longer on an average survival rate of anybody else. How silly I was, because, you know, there is a reason for everything that biology puts in place, including the sleep. That mm-hmm. is a crucial time in which we reset the button of our immune system, our pruning of the brain so that we can, you know, retain some information and get rid of others. And, and, and it's so necessary and, and a disturbed, you know, sleep. I mean, you know, I tend to admire people that can live on three hours of sleep. Poor them. I have to say, they, 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 they really live a miserable life. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they're, I mean, it sounds like we really heal. We heal and we grow when we sleep, right? And so, Absolutely. yeah, we just Absolutely. don't give our bodies as much time to do that. So do you have any more studies in the works around kids and, and COVID-19 right now? We have plenty. Yeah. Because, again, a biobank that was put together by one of our most talented junior faculty at MGH, she's a pulmonologist, Dr. Yenker, um, is really on a verge and a series of other studies to really, you know, answer a lot of questions. You know, why some kids develop, uh, you know, uh, symptoms and other they don't. Why some of these kids, they develop this missy that is so dangerous what are the long-term consequences, even if you are symptomatic, to be infected with COVID-19? Is there anything down the road that we have to be concerned about? So these are all questions that, you know, having one of the largest biorepository of kids uh, screened for COVID-19 um, can answer. So uh, there is a lot of stuff that uh, it's, it's cooking. Oh, that's amazing. Well, well, you'll have to keep us posted, and um, we will... I guess we just keep proceeding forward from here and, and see how each day goes with, um, with back to school. Thank you very much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jill, for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Alessio Fasano. We decided to do this podcast because in our own work, we hear so many differing statements about children and COVID-19. 
We hope that this podcast helped to answer any questions that you have about this horrible disease. Given the events of the past few days, this is yet another reminder to wear a mask, wash your hands, and keep physical distance when you are out and about or in crowds. You can find a link to the study we discussed today with Dr. Pisano on our blog. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.